Colombia has been tough on all of us. The peasants, the women, victims, families of the victims, the human rights lawyers receiving really cruel death threats. It was a lot to swallow. I worked as a field researcher and human rights observer for over 10 years. I wasn't feeling well. I did feel the burden of so many years of human rights work. And I had it, I thought. I had very little energy to nourish a relationship at that point. Ricardo had little energy to nourish a relationship. And that was a problem because he'd just moved a thousand kilometres, more than 600 miles, to the other side of Colombia to live with his girlfriend. She was a human rights lawyer. He'd met her when he interviewed her as part of his work. Living together, it wasn't going as well as he'd hoped. A situation of stress might translate into constant arguing and small, hurtful uh, episodes with my partner. The comment, stupid phrase, whatever. Immediately, emotions would take me to a sad, hurting place. I would close up, feel hurt, and I would become non-responsive. If you feel you've been hurt, you hurt back. He and his partner broke up, and then, maybe because of the breakup, maybe it was a sea change, he did something he should have done a long time ago. I had a break. I thought I wanted to experiment something else, and I, I left the life. I left the life. You're listening to Sound of Mind, a podcast about strange journeys. I'm Lawrence Bull. Ricardo had all the symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, but he'd never seen a therapist. The fact is, he'd been too involved in working with other people's traumas to stop and acknowledge that he'd taken on a good share of those traumas himself. He wanted to feel better. I'm seeking something here. Do I want to cure myself for something? I had a terrible relationship with myself in the last year. It was really difficult. Do I need something? Yes. What is it? He decided to do something unusual. He'd go to the Amazon jungle and he'd try a drug that many researchers are betting is a bona fide cure for PTSD and other mental illnesses. Yahe or ayahuasca. Ayahuasca. A psychotropic beverage, a compound of two different plants. But there was one more complication. This treatment, it was in a war zone. So after studying for about a year, I decided to go to Putumayo, Mokoa. Mokoa, it's beautiful. It's a small town. From anywhere in town, you just look up and what you see, it's deep shades of green. This is the upper hilly part of the Amazon. There are no mosquitoes. Uh, you sleep with your window open and it's perfect. He met up with a friend he knew from yoga and another guy, his friend's friend, who knew a traditional medic in the area, an indigenous man who hosted ayahuasca ceremonies as a business. As soon as you exit town, you, know, you see people on horses and the odd EP lost from the 1960s. Eventually we reached this place, rural, few houses, really friendly guy. In his 40s, his wife was there. The medicine house was actually fairly large, built in traditional fashion, wooden roofs, woven leaves, 
a few hammocks scattered here and there, bonfire in, in the middle, and then an altar with candles next to which the healers were sitting. Two, three people with him, assistants. Eventually time came and started raining. I thought, oh, <laughs> I don't think this is ominous. I, I know, not at all. This is fine. It's, it's, it's going to be a good ceremony. Soon enough, we're drinking the brew. Two hours into the ceremony, I wanted to die. Ill, having diarrhea, and the vomiting experience was traumatic. You could feel these contractions, these cavernous, really roaring sounds. It was the worst feeling I've ever had. I felt I was gonna die, literally. And I approached my friend, it was actually a nice present. I just want to die here. I don't know how you feeling. I said, I'm messy, man. <laughs> he said something actually helped. He said, empathy, empathy, empathy and love. Love yourself, love yourself. Empathy with yourself, love, love, love. It's okay, okay that helps, thanks. And then whenever I felt that I just really couldn't take it anymore, the curandero, the healer, would come. Performance more ritual and I'm feeling better. He would blow sometimes uh, this counterpart called Chondur in my face. But, and that would help. That would help. So when you say you wanted to die, was it a physical experience that you were reacting to? Part of it, yes. It was an, an emotional slash physical experience. What were you feeling emotionally? It was just you feeling. Of one nature, I also didn't know. But there wasn't much introspection yet. The answer to your question will come, but not just yet. There was someone who was much worse than me. And he was an indigenous man. In fact, he was one of the apprentices aiding the main healer. This man had it really bad. He defecated on himself and was lying in the mud outside and emitting the sound of a wolf. He was... Hauling? Yeah. Yeah. Eventually they tied him onto a tree <laughs> for his own protection. Was he hurting himself? He couldn't control his body anymore. Yeah. That was quite hardcore. Around midnight, feeling like <laughs> I want to die and I can't take this, but perhaps that's what we have to do. Traditional ayahuasca practitioners believe expelling vomit and diarrhea has a therapeutic purpose, purging. You're under the impression that you're vomiting litters of material and debris. And and I remember going and taking a look (laughs) back to the crime scene and I couldn't really find anything. Just a tiny wet spot, if you see what I'm saying. Right. There was cleansing. Something happened. Something important happened. You are in a psychedelic trance surrounded by a really powerful nature in the Amazonian. And that became very overwhelming. Still, I never thought I wasn't in the right place. There was something right 
about the process. I was talking to my friend and this guy actually came over and said, you should really shut up now because I'm trying to concentrate. <laughs> oh my God, I thought I'm being rude. We have to be silent, I guess. I am vomiting, I am purging, and I'm in pain. But I feel really connected to nature. I'm starting to connect the dots of my life. I hear that this other chap actually walks out and purges, vomiting. Painful sounds lasted for minutes and minutes. So when he came back, I asked him, I said, are you okay? Is there anything I can do? And he said, I would be fine if I didn't have to listen to you breathing all night. Breathing. Oh, <laughs> that's so rude. That's so tough. Yeah, breathing, exactly. exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, I got angry. I left the house and I just sat outside. But an hour, 45 minutes later, everything became really, really ominous. The sounds, the, the, the lighting, that was feeling dark presences just all around. It was frightening. The healer came. Ricardo, you should actually come inside. There are presences, there are spirits, and I, I need to protect you. I went back inside, I, I felt this tremendous hate and not to go outside again. He came back and asked me again, he says, please, no, sorry. And as he left, I started shouting. And I felt something really, 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 really new. I wanted to murder this guy. I wish he would come out right now and I'll finish him with my bare hands. I'm not even gonna pick up a stone. I just went away with my hands. All my life, the previous 15 years, all the important episodes started flashing and running in front of me, like a movie. Refugees, bombs, dead people, flames, soldiers shooting. Why? Why was I there? What have I done? Is this the condition we're in? And I started shouting. The essential ingredient in ayahuasca is the kapi, a twisting, woody vine. Like a vine feeds from a tree, an ayahuasca trip sources raw materials from its host. It takes thoughts and memories and does some sort of structural readjustment. The roots of Ricardo's memories were 20 years deep. They'd started their stranglehold in another jungle, in the very south of Mexico. Chiapas, Mexico, in the 1990s. I remember one night in San Cristobal de las Casas, there were two, three girls. They were selling food on the street, and a white van just stopped. And a man came out and grabbed the little girl, dragged her inside the van, and just took off. It was horrific. We chased the van, and then other people, we shouted. San Cristobal has got some narrow roads. They didn't have a leeway to actually take off. We could have reached the van somehow. Some people started running after it as well. Eventually, they actually came to a halt, opened the door and pushed the girl out. 
and she was really really scared of course and then you know talking afterwards people said you know this is normal this happens all the time landowners from from surrounding areas that think that raping an indigenous woman is no crime it's something that we always done and and they can continue to do it you know there's, there's impunity but what ricardo was witnessing in the city in the very south of mexico was just a preview to something even more sinister in the surrounding jungle in a typical journey he'd catch a bus to a small town on the edge of the jungle then hitch a ride on a supply truck the trucks would invariably break down or get stuck in the mud, so he'd spend a lot of the trip helping push and pull them to get them going again. Those were long journeys. Ricardo had grown up in Rome. His dad used to capture his imagination with stories about living in northern Africa. He went to university in California and became politically active. He'd go to talks and protests about Latin American issues. Now he was volunteering as a human rights observer. It was something he could put on his resume. He wanted to help, but he wasn't prepared for violence. Little I knew that that was going to change the rest of my life entirely. I remember a night we were woken up in a village about a kilometre away, a group of paramilitaries armed masked men I just, just walked by and people got really scared so we got on the road we started walking we got to the village it was still pitch dark and people just had gathered all their belonging and loaded up some mules and horses and a village of about 10 15 20 families at the most was just emptied out I mean, these people are leaving everything they have behind. It's not much, but those are their lives. As we walked with the old village, we arrived into another village. By the time we got there, it was actually already almost daylight. They already made food for the people who displaced themselves. There was a breakfast ready. Throughout the morning, they decided that each family in the village would take on a family from the other village. They would just open their houses and, and let them stay where they could. They would have made a list, Celestino and Robertino, people from other communities that were donating foods and pigs were sent in and sugar and salt. I thought, my God, what an incredible manifestation of solidarity. Ricardo knew he was witnessing a revolution. It was the Zapatista uprising. A relatively small group of indigenous families, enough to fill a football stadium, declared themselves independent from the Mexican government. And the government was fighting back. Brutally. He wanted to write a PhD thesis on what was happening, and Cambridge University took him up on the offer. It was a crucial moment. A new voice was in the making. But elements in the government didn't like the national and international attention that the Zapatistas were getting. And that's how Ricardo's problems began. One day, Ricardo got on a bus to go back to the region he was working in. Right after the curve, there was a roadblock. People came on board the bus. You, 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 off the bus. You have 24 hours to show up at the immigration office. After that, you will be up for deportation. 
He says the notice wasn't official and the deportation was illegal, but to many government officials, it wouldn't have made a difference. The Mexican government contained competing factions. This meant Ricardo didn't know which officials he could turn to for help. Eleven other human rights workers had also been served dodgy deportation orders. Ricardo went with them to the city's cultural centre, a sort of library, museum and art space, in protest, and they locked themselves inside. We became the news in Mexico at the time. I mean, we had radio, press and TV <laughs> camping outside the human rights centres, uh, media feast following the headlines. Twelve foreigners expelled from Mexico, refusing to leave. That was a big headline. That's how 90% of the press decided to handle it. Colonialist foreigners interfering with Mexican politics. Why is the government not kicking them out? The pressure was on. We started receiving death threats on the streets. If we left the premise at night, they would shoot us. One of us went out and was actually punched and kicked by somebody. Still, we believe in what we're doing and we didn't want to leave. We lasted, I think, about two weeks. In the end, the Zapatistas told them to stop the protest. They said the situation was taking attention away from more important things. We decided to go to Mexico City. By that time, he had heaps of material for his PhD thesis. And I gave up the check-in a big cardboard box with all my research material. Big mistake. He landed in Mexico City, went to collect his luggage, but his box was gone. Two years at least of work. That was actually the beginning of a series of occurrences that will accompany me for the next three years of my life. These occurrences would follow him around the world, but they started in Mexico City. One night, Ricardo and a couple of colleagues were walking along the street looking for somewhere to eat. They noticed three or four men following them. One of his colleagues, a young Jesuit priest, approached the men. And said, can you please identify yourself? At that point, one of these men took out his gun and loaded it. Cluck, cluck. He was actually funny about it, came back and said, I think he doesn't want to talk. They went back to the Human Rights Centre and the director called some local police he knew and trusted. The cops came and they approached the men. Who are you? Identify yourself. And these other guys saying, I don't need to identify myself to you because I do work for the government. And I don't have to tell you which agency because I'm way above you. And they both actually reach for their weapons. And then the unidentified ones just took off. And this wasn't an isolated incident. Strange men would stalk Ricardo and his colleagues wherever they went. So they went to fewer and fewer places. We couldn't do much. Our life was just during the day at the Human Rights Centre, at night with our hosts at home. By then, we wouldn't even go out to get food. One afternoon, I remember I got fed up of being followed everywhere. I left the office, I popped on a taxi. Immediately, I saw that I was being followed again. We were in a traffic jam. There were three, four cars behind us. I paid the taxi, opened the door, started running, crossed to the other side of the street, ran, <laughs> ran into the town, and basically, I lost my trail. I felt free, it was great. I've been for almost a month under the gun, literally. 
One of his best friends lived nearby. He called her from a payphone. She said, Ricardo, my God, I've been hearing about you. <laughs> You're in the press every day. We're worried about it. Come stay with us. We'll feed you. You'll have fun. We'll dance. We had debates. We drank. Perhaps we did some drugs. That was 10 days of a vacation. So one afternoon I said goodbye. I said, I don't know, perhaps this is an adios. I might not be able to come back ever. I, I got to go back to the Human Rights Center. I took a taxi. As soon as I entered, there was a huge, huge movement of people coming out of cars, picking up radios and showing weapons. Really, really scary. Oh, my God, they were waiting for me. Ricardo was told he wasn't safe in Mexico anymore. He decided to leave. The Italian embassy arranged a van and a police escort. <laughs> so being accompanied by by a crew, an entourage of uh, 10 people. Of course, I was wearing a Subcomandante Marcos T-shirt because I was in my 20s. I had to provoke as much as I could. He flew to Toronto, Canada. He did some media interviews, gave talks at universities, but he was getting itchy feet. A revolution was going on without him. He had to get back to Mexico. I didn't fly, just in case. I, I thought maybe it's better to stay off the radar. So we drove to San Antonio in El Paso. And then by foot, we crossed the border into Ciudad Juarez. And there we were in Mexico again. He got back to Chiapas, went to the jungle and got back to work. I was constantly working and traveling from one community to the next and opening human rights camps. I was very committed and motivated. But Ricardo had a problem. He was hanging out with anti-government revolutionaries because the whole point of his PhD was to study the movement firsthand. He was trying to be inconspicuous, but the nature of his work put him squarely in government crosshairs. One night, he was asleep in a little community in the Highlands. He was woken up by a loud commotion outside. It was around 3am. So, of course, I put my boots on and swapped out and incredible sight I saw... Hundreds and hundreds of indigenous peasants, all wearing uniforms, <laughs> trucks and women and kids. What is this? A takeover of the municipal palace in San Cristobal. We're going there in Zapatista fashion. We are face covered, hopped on a truck, going down the mountain. We made it to San Cristobal de las Casas. Tourists, the locals, you know, wide-eyed. People entered the municipal palace. They, of course, local authorities rushed out, <laughs> left, went home. And so the Zapatistas took over the center of political San Cristobal. A few days later, when they left, I stayed behind because I was waiting for a shipment, just a small box of medicine, medical supplies. That morning, I felt that something wasn't right. Something was telling me that I was in danger. I remember that feeling as, as if it was today. A friend of mine came talk to me. As we walked towards the NGO, we had to go through the Socalo, the main square. Something told me, don't cross that square. Don't do it. Don't do it. And I actually expressed it to the guy walking with me and said, you know what? I don't feel good about this. I, I, I think we should be going that way. He said, Ricardo, don't be paranoid. And I thought, okay, maybe, maybe he's right. And as soon as we approached 
the main square. A car, beaten old car uh, with no license plate. I made a screech noise, stopped in front of us. The door opened and I was pushed in. Someone who wasn't in the car was already behind us. It was a kidnapping. His friend saw the whole thing. I remember his eyes, his wide eyes. Couldn't believe what he was witnessing. And I shouted at him and I said, let them know, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and then took off. <laughs> Who are you? What are you going to do to me? He says, no, don't worry. We're not going to use violence against you. When we use violence, we have other people. You're going to be arrested. You're going to be deported. I said, why am I going to be arrested? I haven't done anything. I'm an anthropologist. I wasn't scared, I have to say. I mean, only you're young <laughs> and full of ideals. They never identified themselves and never explained the reason for the detention. Ricardo, we know you. You are a member of the Sabatist Army of National Liberation. I'm saying, no, I'm not. I'm an anthropologist. I'm doing human rights work. I said, well, no, you're not anymore. <laughs> We're going to arrest you and... You're going back to where you're from. You're going to get married. You're going to have children. Forget about the old spirits. <laughs> so we just drove around all day, drove to the countryside and, and stayed there until late in the evening. I didn't know what was going on. Why are, he, are we by a field? And these guys are not telling me anything. I tried not to get catastrophic. They're going to torture and kill me. It would have been a lot scarier a few years earlier somewhere in El Salvador. So I hope for the best. That's it. Just try to you know, keep my cool and see how the, the, the situation unfolded. Of course, I grew a bit anxious. They spent the night in a small hotel. In the morning, an official took him to the airport where he says he was interrogated by a host of people trying to get him to confess to various crimes. They put a large document in front of him and he refused to sign. I haven't broken any laws. I'm not going to sign anything. They deported him in handcuffs and banned him from Mexico for 10 years. That was complicated. I couldn't accept it. So for a few weeks, I, I was thinking, playing with the idea that I was going back in. Ricardo has never been back to Mexico. 22nd of December, 1997. I checked in into a small hotel in Santa Barbara. I was getting ready to, to get out and watching TV. I heard the news. 45 people were reported killed. Uh, elderly men, uh, adults, children, pregnant women. Slaughtered by paramilitaries in a church. That, that was a hard reality to face. That affected us, all of us, quite, quite deeply. It was a strong blow, I guess. I was angry, powerless, panicky, sad, nervous, agitated, anxious. I kept in a state of alert for several days and weeks. And uh, for God knows what reasons, I made a vow and I decided that I wasn't going to celebrate Christmas, not only that year, but ever. 
Ricardo avoided his family for the next seven years. Instead of celebrating Christmas with them, he'd get a hotel room, spend a few days smoking pot and watching TV. Just waiting basically for the period to be over. He has fond memories of Christmas. His family was small and they loved each other. They'd eat a lot, exchange gifts, and Ricardo would make his mum and sister laugh by playing a prank on his dad. Three years in a row, I gave my dad the same book. The actual same physical book. I would just recycle it <laughs> from his bookshelf, <laughs> repackage it. <laughs> and every year he would thank me, oh, this is one. We all thought it was really funny. He was in on the joke, was he? No, no, never, no. <laughs> you mean you gave him the same present three years in a row and he didn't even notice? Yeah, I think he was actually quite pleasantly surprised every time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What do you think rejecting Christmas represented in your mind? It's an interesting question. I, I, why would you estrange yourself from, from loved ones in order to protest the massacre <laughs> or trying to heal from a massacre? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, would you say that that was perhaps an expression of self-arming behavior? Yeah. I mean, it, it sounds to me like you're putting up an emotional defense, like you're putting up armor. Yeah. I, it's a fair enough description. I, I think it's a, it's a very good guess. I guess that, that was my, my jerked reaction at the moment, my default reaction. It is a defense. You're right. It is a defense. After the massacre, he stayed with a friend in Santa Monica, California. One night, they came home from dinner to find his laptop had been moved and a sticker had been ripped off. The message was clear. The sticker had pictured a prominent revolutionary from Mexican history. Emiliano Zapata. Namesake of the Zapatistas. These kind of incidents kept happening to Ricardo wherever he went. The Mexican government made it really clear to me that they didn't want me back. So they put a couple of people <laughs> behind me. They were following me constantly everywhere I went. In the United States, they were following you? Yeah, in the US. At one point, he flew to Japan for a holiday. He says he spotted agents in Japan, and he went up to them. So are you on vacation? They got really, really annoyed, shrugged. They didn't reply. The agents were getting to his head. What's going on? I've been thought watching my movements. Why it is that? And can anything happen to me? I think that that had an effect on my psyche. I became really alert, sometimes even almost paranoid. But then, in retrospect, I don't think he was paranoia because, <laughs> because he was completely justified. The thing is that when it ended, I kept alert, if you want to call it that, for many years. What's moving around me? Is there something that's trying to stop me again? A corrosive you know, feeling of being watched in a place where you were supposed to feel completely safe. He went back to the UK and after seven miserable and restless years at Cambridge, Ricardo finished his PhD. And for some reason, there was a need to get out of a quote-unquote safe academic environment and and face more extreme conditions. I don't know, maybe an escape. In 2003, he volunteered for human rights work again, this time in the Iraq war. Yeah, I felt driven, I had to. And as soon as I had the opportunity, I, I thought that I had to, I had to go. 
His job involved interviewing civilians and internal refugees and writing up reports on what they were going through. The effects of bombings and, and attacks on hospitals, schools, uh, people, really violent, uh, extreme suffering of people at war. I prefer not to talk about that. I don't respect them because the episodes are extremely graphic, but uh, all I can tell you is that you, you, you imagine war and the worst that war can offer. And that is what we saw. Do you think you don't want to relive it yourself as well? Possibly, yes. Yes, as well. Definitely, definitely, definitely. There are things within us that we don't want to touch. Do I regret being there? Not at all. But you don't want to talk about it. So you felt like your psychological burden just grew with each kind of passing event. Is that correct? I wasn't conscious about that. All I would evaluate at the moment were the political implications of my actions and what I witnessed. But I wasn't thinking about Ricardo as a person. That wasn't a phase of looking in the mirror. That wasn't a phase of understanding myself. PTSD is a poorly understood mental illness. For example, we don't know why two people can witness the same event, leaving one with PTSD and the other without any symptoms. Ricardo thinks the experiences which likely traumatised him paled in comparison to those of the victims he worked with. I saw war. Uh, I never had my house destroyed. I was blessed with not losing a sister or a brother at war. I wasn't tortured and maimed and killed and raped. Yeah, I mean, obviously those would be horrible things to occur, but so would the threat of those things sure. be horrible. Yeah, that, and that's what you were undergoing yeah. for years, right? Yeah. You were suffering under the threat of those things maybe occurring often at any minute. Yeah. At a moment's notice. Yeah, 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 yeah. Then, yeah, there were a bit of that. It was a slow process, right? It was, you know, things were piling up on top of things, I think. Ricardo got a new job in Baghdad, but before he could start, his boss was kidnapped and the office was shut down. So he left the Middle East and got a job in Colombia, working with victims of the 50-year-long civil war. The number of internally displaced people in Colombia had reached more than 5 million, it was overwhelming. It rivaled war-torn Syria for the highest count of internally displaced people worldwide. Ricardo interviewed the families of executed civilians. Paramilitary death squads massacring entire communities throughout the country. And again, my work implied going to the heart of the problem. He'd been doing his job for 10 years, and that's when he took a break, went to Makoa and drank ayahuasca. Things were piling up on top of things. Grabbed the little girl, dragged her inside the van. If we left the premise, they would shoot us. Took out his gun and loaded it. And I made a screech noise. The door opened and I was pushed in. 45 people were reported killed. The Mexican government following me constantly, bombing attacks, hospitals, schools, people. The worst that war can offer. Paramilitary death squads massacring entire communities. I felt this tremendous hate. I wanted to murder this guy. I wish he would come out right now and I'll finish him. 
and I started shouting. He was out on the balcony of the medicine house, reliving the worst of his experiences in graphic flashbacks. He threw his torch in anger. Then he felt sad when it broke. If you get sad, you break a flashlight, you probably get even more sad if you, <laughs> if you kill your, your friend's friend. He went for a hike in the jungle to calm down. He was still tripping. When morning came, they all agreed Ricardo would leave. Someone in town made him a map and directed him to another healer downriver. He brushed off the fact that this would take him into a disputed zone, where the FARC rebels fought the Colombian army. He got in a speedboat and headed south, where he'd disembark on the other side in Ecuador. He'd been in the boat for about an hour when they were flagged down by men with guns. An illegal armed force. We were detained and they warned us. The ceasefire had been suspended and the FARC guerrilla might have resumed belligerent activities. I had important reasons to, <laughs> to continue, I thought. <laughs> I was seeking something. What is it? I don't really know. But I certainly want to feel better. Weren't you worried about being kidnapped or mistaken as, you know... For a spy. Yeah, or who knows what. Yes, of course. It could have happened, but it hasn't happened before with aid workers. And I guess you travel with at least an illusion of (laughs) impunity. We were let through and we have finally approached the place in Ecuador where I was going to stay. The person who greeted me was a really, really old man. He claims to be 112, (laughs) but who knows? (laughs) He lived right on the river with his family. He was expecting me. He greeted me and I was offered food. I don't speak Siona. He speaks no Spanish, so we had no lingua franca. You just have to be patient and take in the environment, read, hope that nothing would happen related to the ceasefire. The first day went by, second day went by, nothing happened. On the third day in the morning, He said, tonight we're going to have a ceremony. A few hours later, it's getting dark. His family left. They all went for the night. There's no electricity. He lit a small fire outside, lit some candles. He started praying. It was quite solemn. And then we drank the first potion. Just as I had the cup in my hand, That is when I heard, boom, gunfire, boom. I thought, oh God. And we saw this lightning light outside. They were fighting, not dangerously close, but close enough you could hear it and see the lightning. I thought, great. (laughs) Oh my going to have a yahe ceremonies when they're warring on the other side. Oh, my God. Did you worry that that would affect you psychologically? My worry was that I was going to get caught in a war-fighting situation whilst I was in a 
different state of conscience <laughs> because it might impair my judgment. But it didn't last long, that thought. I looked at the man, he, he was surprised as well, but he looked at me and says, ah, that's far away, that's far away, it's Colombia. We're in Ecuador. <laughs> across the river. Yeah, across the river, further up north. And that was it. That was the only noise we heard and the only lightning. A few days later, Ricardo would find out that the FARC guerrillas had ambushed soldiers guarding an oil well. They'd launched a mortar. But he was caught up in another kind of long-standing internal conflict. Whenever I shut my eyes, I was at war. Oh, help! Can't take this! I had a gigantic red octopus going wild in me and hurting me, you know, emotionally and physically. He wanted to come out. He was a monster. And I thought that if I would be able to scream, you know, it would come out and I would expel it or vomit. The old man was like just a few feet from me and he moves really, really slowly. That's an old, old body we're talking about. And he'll come and he says, shh. No noise. Oh, my God. <laughs> He's worse than my friend's friend. <laughs> no noise. And I think, well, why no noise? He saw something. I tried to stay quiet, but then I was actually making jerking movement. I had cramps in my stomach. I was moving in the hammer. Not violently at all, but I was, I was moving. Again, I heard the old man leaving his place. Pop, pop, pop. No move! Oh my God. You don't move. And then he laughed. <laughs> Ricardito. And he was stroking my head, really tender. Ricardito, a lot of suffering. <laughs> a lot of suffering. He knew. This is a good healer. And he said something that never occurred to me ever. Pídele perdón a Dios si es necesario. Ask God for forgiveness if you need to. Oof. He said it really clearly. I was surprised because everything was in broken Spanish. And he left. I left my, <laughs> my arrogant atheism <laughs> aside for a moment <laughs> and said, oh, maybe this time I listen. Not like the, the, the previous ceremony. This time I'll, 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 I'll listen. And I'll do what, what they suggest. He knows better. He's the healer. I came to him. <laughs> it was about control, taming something inside and not making any noise about it and not manifesting it through motions, body movements, mental hygiene, control, spirit and matter, control. On the first ceremony I lost control, I shouted, I scared the other partakers, and I certainly scared the, the other participants. 
<laughs> he was probably terrified about having it out of his head. Italian orbiting around the shack outside wanted to kill him. Poor chap. Just, just never thought about asking God for forgiveness. His entire adult life, Ricardo had been in conflict with established authorities and institutions. Governments, organised religion, armies, academia, even Christmas. Along the way, he'd become militant and rigid in his thinking. He saw more black and white, fewer shades of grey. He had trouble differentiating a protest against injustice from an irrational outburst. Now he was being told to ask forgiveness from God. Growing up in Italy, God had been at the top of the most established authority there was, the Catholic Church. There's God, there's the Pope, there's the, the intermediaries, that's the church, and there's you, and that's the ladder. I still tend to think in a very hierarchical, dogmatic, normative, <laughs> Catholic, and who knows if that scheme of things, you know, was actually serving as an impairment, <laughs> as an impediment, as an obstacle for me to actually open up to spirituality. So here I am, I can't breathe again, I can't move, and then I thought, perhaps I do need to ask for forgiveness. And I saw this red octopus. When I was really young, I made an experiment in oceanography class with octopuses. We created an environment and realized how intelligent the species is. It's one of the reasons I'm vegetarian. That was me. That was part of me. Perhaps it came from somewhere, but still. I had to tame that monster inside. Ricardo took a boat back to Makoa and eventually made his way home. He made a decision to finish up his work with victims of conflict. He went on to co-found a travel company, taking people to live in traditional indigenous villages and participate in ceremonies. A year later, he went back to human rights work, but this time working with victims of climate change rather than conflict. I started noticing changes, I would say, about a year after I started drinking. Three and a half years ago, uh, a situation of stress might translate into constant arguing and small, hurtful uh, episodes with my partner. I would retrench. I would close up, feel hurt, and I would become non-responsive. That can happen to all of us. It's, it's, it's a natural process. You know, sometimes you close and then you get defensive, and then you, if you feel you've been hurt, you hurt back. The problem is the degree to which you do that. It arms you and, and the people around you. It makes you suffer. You're not feeling well. I don't react like that anymore to life. Ricardo has friends who've reported radical transformations after just one session. Revelations from outer space, receiving forgiveness from the dead. Ricardo says his own experience and that of many people is a gradual one. Sure, there are mystical experiences and life-changing epiphanies like the one he experienced by the river, but all constitute gradual steps on a journey that, for him, has now lasted three years. 
He's hesitant to describe his otherworldly experiences because he says that languages can't do them justice and descriptions can cheapen the experience and can invite ridicule. Some things have to be experienced to be understood. Of course, as with any drug, there are risks. Being a psychotropic drug, the main concern is psychosis. A review of human studies in Brazil, where the drug is legal and not uncommon, found that psychotic reactions were a rare phenomenon, apparently associated with pre-existing conditions, use of other drugs, and lack of supervision. That review was conducted by neuroscientists from the University of Sao Paulo. A recent study at the same university found no association between the use of ayahuasca and any significant long-term harm to the brain. In a different double-blind study, 14 patients diagnosed with depression were given a single dose of ayahuasca, while 15 were given a placebo. After a week, two-thirds of the patients given ayahuasca were found to have significantly improved versus only about one-quarter of the placebo patients. That's not to say the drug is necessarily safe. Some ceremonies are conducted by inexperienced or negligent hosts, and this could turn what seems to be a relatively safe practice into a dangerous one. What's more, even a well-conducted ceremony could still be a pretty horrible experience, depending on the person, their state of mind and other variables. More studies are needed, and they're coming. The United States Federal Drug Administration has approved a protocol for the first US trial of ayahuasca to treat depression. Researchers are also building on evidence for the drug's potential to treat substance abuse, anxiety and PTSD. People in the Amazon seem to have been using ayahuasca medicinally for several thousand years. People recur to traditional medicines for things as mundane as diarrhea or stomach cramps or more serious diseases, but also to cure addictions, for example, like alcoholism, or to solve family situations, lack of love, domestic violence from the roots. After his year off, Ricardo and his partner decided to give their relationship another try. We were staying in love with each other and things had changed. In late 2015, he reached out to his family and told them he loved them. He felt better than he had in decades. He'd been visiting Mokoa regularly, drinking ayahuasca and working with an organisation campaigning for Indigenous rights. But between our conversations... Disaster struck Makoa. When it happened, Ricardo was staying in a room at a hostel. The TV just made a flashy bang. It's like having a thunder and a lightning in your own room. Never have seen something like that. I peeked out of the window. and It's the storm. The electricity went off and it never came back. Around six in the morning, I realized what happened. Three large mudslides. At least three neighborhoods were just basically wiped out. We did lose about 300 people, probably 400. Yeah, it was really awful. Connected with friends, went around town. The level of devastation, I've never seen anything like that before. Places where you used to eat, meet people and have coffee, they were just gone. They were just gone. I was on the phone with my girlfriend just to make sure she, she knew I was all right. And we, we headed towards a bridge, and the bridge wasn't there anymore. And where there used to be a neighborhood, it was just basically a, an extension of mud and debris. Really, really impactful. 
For the week after that, I was really unwell, really down, because I think it triggered a few things. I mean, your whole world just changes from one day to the next. What were you feeling? Powerless, very low on energy, alone, and not in control. My immediate reaction after coming back to, to the people I love was to take off for five days, saying, I, I can't deal with people right now. I need to be on my own. So I guess there is a little bit of a pattern there, perhaps. What is the appropriate behavior? I mean, do you know? Because I don't. I don't think there's an appropriate behavior necessarily. I think maybe everyone deals with it differently. But I, I guess I mean there are behaviors that are counterproductive, that, that work against your own interests. And it seems to me that perhaps you avoided that this time. Thank you. <laughs> I've, had, I've experienced a few more things. I, I drank ayahuasca a few more times. Nevertheless, I am. We are. I mean, we're still vulnerable to suffering and devastation. We're supposed to be. On the other hand, you need the time to recover. You need to cry. But in the process, you shouldn't make anyone else suffer, for example, or estrange yourself from loved ones or instigate fights with people who are close to you or, or take it out on them. Ricardo returned home to his partner, apologised for leaving and got on with his new life. Does she agree with you that you've changed and does she see that as a change that's brought about by Yahe? Yeah, significantly. Yes. Yeah, we've talked about it. Now I am annoying because I mention it quite often. I don't get pissed off anymore. Right? Now it's only you. <laughs> now I'm perfect. <laughs> now it's like, oh, whatever. <laughs> she, she said something I don't like. Oops. I'm not saying that, you know, my partner and I never have any, any more arguments. I mean, we're still humans. How do I respond now? In a way that I could not conceive three years earlier. I didn't know it was possible. Because immediately emotions would take me to a sad, hurting place, neuronal pathways, connections that you have through the years. I don't go there anymore. I don't go there anymore. There are other options open. That's how I feel Today, Ricardo Vitale works as an anthropologist consultant for various international organisations such as Oxfam. He's also an advisor for the Union of Indigenous Yahe Medics of the Colombian Amazon. A huge thanks to Ricardo for speaking with me for this episode. Thanks also to Sydney's 2SER for supporting this series. And thanks to Nina Copel, Marilia Costa, Liam O'Donoghue and my other friends and colleagues for their constructive feedback. And a big thank you to Snap Judgments and Assessment for being a great mentor. If you like this episode, please tell someone. My name is Lawrence Bull, and you've been listening to Sound of Mind. <laughs>